Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? Great week. Kids back to school in person at Orange County Charter in Orange, California. Wow. A Hillsdale School. Uh, they're excited. Worn out by 7.30 p.m. Every parent's dream. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Life's been good from Tuesday onward. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, last week we looked at the Supreme Court opening that was created by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And if you want a concise version of what we said, we actually published an essay that summarized our argument at The Federalist earlier this week, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes. Basically, we argued that there was plenty of time to complete the constitutional process of nomination, advice, and consent responsibly before the election takes place. Now, we're recording on Friday, just hours after President Trump announced that he and the First Lady had tested positive for COVID-19. Also, uh, Mike Lee, I saw, had as well over the course of the day. How that's going to affect confirmation process for Judge Barrett, upcoming debates, campaign more generally, certainly difficult to project at this point. Uh, We're not going to say much more about that, except to wish them and everyone else who's fighting the illness a speedy and full recovery. So our focus today is going to be on the state of our civic culture. And so let's go right to the headlines. Very interesting Politico article published yesterday as part of their October magazine. The piece is entitled, Americans Increasingly Believe Violence is Justified If the Other Side Wins. Five authors from the the worlds of academia and think tanks, based on survey data from YouGov and the Voter Survey Group, looking at this over a several year period of time, and then they've checked in earlier this summer and again very recently, across parties, Democrat and Republican, about one in three partisans believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's political goals, which is substantially up over the last three years. And in the most recent survey, 44% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats say there would at least be a little justification for violence if the other party's nominee wins the election. In June, just three months ago, it was 35% of Republicans and 37% of Democrats. So as the election's drawing closer, the tensions are drawing higher and we're getting to a point where almost half of the voting population is willing to at least see some justification for violence if their party loses. Now, if you drill down a little bit further and you look at those among Democrats who identify as very liberal, 26% said there would be a great deal of justification for violence if their candidate loses, compared to only 7% of those who call themselves simply liberal. So the very liberal, 26%, the liberal, 7 On the Republican side, very conservative 16% think there would be great deal of justification for violence if President Trump loses. And 7% of those that call themselves conservative more generally. Not only are we seeing that partisans on both sides are embracing the possibility of violence to a higher degree, but maybe not surprisingly, 
those at the ideological streams of each party are especially willing to talk about violence and to talk about there being a great deal of justification for violence, which is to say, you're talking about the real possibility of at least endorsing it, if not participating in it, if that's what happens after the election. Now, the authors here, looking at this data and obviously concerned by it, suggest two things. Uh, Number one, that it's the primary responsibility of political leaders at all levels to lower the temperature here, that their followers will follow the tone that they set. And so they need, in the opinion of the authors here, especially to emphasize two things. Number one, that voters should freely decide who rules and that, in other words, shouldn't be under the threat of violence. And secondly, that all valid votes should be counted toward that decision. Those are the two principles they would like to see both Joe Biden and Donald Trump emphasize in speaking to their supporters. And then secondly, they propose that Congress immediately appoint an independent bipartisan commission that would have elder statesmen of each party and maybe some others that were identified with either party who could make the same point. Sounds like a solution drawn up by social scientists for an MMA match. Um, Bipartisan commission, no? I I love blue ribbon commissions, yes. (laughs) I didn't even mention the blue ribbon, but of course that would have to come with it, I suppose. They've worked for 2,500 years. I I think the numbers are are interesting and and somewhat scary, but you know, whenever I I see these numbers, the question that I always have is, uh, you know, why is there the splinter that there is? And um, can you somehow in understanding the differences of opinion and draw those out, uh, give, um, uh, give some awareness uh, to the difference uh, that makes you not want to think that every difference uh, in opinion you have, I should say, is a difference of principle, as Jefferson uh, famously said. So that the, the essay that I read uh, just this morning in prepping for the show and, and this theme, a great essay written by uh, Colleen Sheehan in The American Mind, um, a great website uh, that uh, is covering this uh, fiercely, uh, she she writes um, about these you know, these she calls it converging hurricanes, and um, what happens when you have two powerful storms that are heading uh, for each other, and and she says that you get something called the Fujiwara effect, uh, where you either have two storms merge into one, or the one of the two storms runs out of uh, energy and and fuels um, the other. Doesn't look like we're going to have a merging of um, the two parties uh, anytime soon. <laughs> so uh, uh, Sheehan argues, Professor Sheehan argues that it's probably going to be the one um, petering out and, and giving energy to the other. But what are these two storms is, is what I'm trying to get at here, Matt. So um, Sheehan writes, uh, why is America so deeply splintered and why do the two groups harbor such profound distrust and intense enmity for each other? What is this internecine quarrel fundamentally about? And why for both sides are the stakes so high and the costs so dear? To my mind, the dispute is about what it means to be an American. It is about the values that anchor the American ethos. One side views the purpose of America as expressed in the maxims that have guided the nation since its birth, summarized in the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. According to this perspective, all human beings are created equal, and the aim of government is to secure the equal natural and civil rights of its citizens. From this vantage point, government is limited in scope, acting the part of an impartial umpire as the American people participate in the experiment in self-government. In contrast, progressives believe that the traditional modes and orders of the nation are outdated, 
and advocate new ones that can meet the needs of an advanced industrial and technocratic society. This includes growing the size and scope of the national government and its administrative agencies, especially with respect to the regulatory and social justice issues. Decisions by various political and policy experts take the place of local town halls and venues of self-government. Centralization replaces federalism, and governmental bureaucracy supplants voluntary associations. In essence, professionalism and expertise replace civic engagement. These were exactly the talking points of last Tuesday's debate, correct? Uh, that would have been nice. I, I would have probably enjoyed that debate. We, we, we could have had that debate on a different night, perhaps with different candidates. But I think Sheehan's obviously summarized at a more fundamental level what's really at stake. Yeah, and if you were to take up, I mean, there were six main issues, right? A couple of them were the COVID response. Uh, one was healthcare policy, the record of the candidates. I mean, if you were to take up those issues from this vantage point of kind of what is the fountainhead of thought behind um, kind of one type of conservatism that's been very powerful in, in American political thought and the other progressive uh, way of thinking about these issues, you see a clear difference. It doesn't mean that you embrace the other, but understanding the other, I think, better enables you uh, to deal with the other and perhaps not want to hurt, harm, or kill the other. I think back to our, our studies and discussions of early progressives like a Herbert Crowley, you can see how he's adopting the language of equality and equal opportunity. And he's sincerely reading Jefferson and Hamilton and looking at their arguments and, and finding them inadequate for the circumstances of his day, but, but trying to appreciate how something of their vision can yet be captured in the industrialized post-Civil War America that he's observing. And maybe he's ultimately got that wrong, but, but he's very respectful of that tradition in a certain sense in, in seeing that as a formidable and challenging challenger to the vision that he's trying to present. Yeah, a type of, I mean, I wouldn't call it chastened liberalism, but a tempered liberalism uh, that, that, that doesn't want to radicalize American society so that it's one, one way or the other, but perhaps a consensus can be formed in which you achieve a more perfect union, albeit uh, defined in, in progressive terms. But I, I definitely would agree with that description of, of Crowley. Uh, it's interesting later on in our show when I do the required reading, I'm going to give you a, a different a type of liberal thinker who, who may have kind of put us on the trajectory from something different than that. But yeah, I think, I think you're right on there. So I guess maybe one question we could take from this Politico article, if we're not going to immediately endorse the blue ribbon panel idea, is, is there something that President Trump and former Vice President Biden should be doing, can be doing to try to speak to their most committed supporters about the need to refrain from violence, to accept the results of the election, to see a, an American across the table from them, even if that person's a member of the other party. I think Biden did a little bit of that at the end of the debate. I was uh, very happy that he said, win or lose, uh, there should be a winner uh, of this um, election. And if I lose, uh, then of course, you know, the, the, uh, President Trump remains president. So uh, I think a lot more of that would be helpful. Uh, it'd be more helpful if it was done also within the context of kind of telling the truth as to where you are with regard to if you become president, what you'll do. But I, I think right. that those are things that will be helpful. All right. So that's kind of the top-down solution to the problem. The political piece tells us what the elite should do, the political leaders themselves, 
But let's look at this from a different standpoint. Let's, let's talk about more of a bottom-up approach here. And think about maybe the role of civic education in all this. So to start that off, just want to look at where we are on some kind of basic facts. And of course, this is always somewhat depressing. And so there was an article actually at Real Clear Education yesterday summarizing some recent surveys. According to the Annenberg Civics Knowledge Study just last year, about 39% of Americans could name all three branches of government. Three years ago, more than a third surveyed could not name any of the rights protected by the First Amendment. Uh, more recently, 2020 survey by the American Bar Association, only 36% knew what the Constitution said was the supreme law of the land, which of course is the Constitution, laws pursuant to it, and the treaties that are made under the Constitution. Probably all you had to say was Constitution, and that was probably kind of correct. And yet it was only 36% that was able to identify that. One more survey, uh, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, 63% didn't know the term lengths of U.S. senators and representatives. Now, we, we teach politics, and so you can find these kind of numbers depressing. There's sort of facts that you wish every fifth grader knew, much less every voter. And certainly when you get to college level, you, you hope that some of these things are, are well understood by your students. But on the other hand, they are just facts. So, so what, what, what do we make of this? Why would this be significant or concerning? Yeah, because I, I don't think it's about process. I don't think it's about facts. I don't think it's about identifying major characteristics of our institutions. I, I think what uh, these, these um, surveys show is the disconnect between our everyday existence and our tie to the body politic that is going to be somewhat essential uh, for the world that we live in 10, 20, 30 years down the road. You know, why are these things important? Why is it important to understand the difference between a variant of conservatism that looks back to the founding and progressivism? Why is it important to be able to apply those to the issues of the day? Because I think what that speaks to is your ability to, to think through at a level what you think is just, what you think is the best way of life that you'll apply in, in your own life and the choices that you make and in your responsibilities that you have to others and your associations with others. So I think it speaks to a, a, the, the lack of association and communion within the body politic itself, uh, an atomism uh, that is there. Uh, and individualism unto kind of I'm going to do what I'm going to do, uh, live my private existence, um, the heck with the public square. And um, I think that's problematic. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do, I don't know about you, Matt, but a lot of what I'm trying to do when I teach a class like American Civilization and Culture, I'm not trying to teach kids to, to ace this test. I'm teaching these kids how to think of themselves as part of a continuum that's, that's important, uh, a historical continuum, uh, a regime continuum in which the choices they make intellectually and morally will have a great consequence on their private existences and their public lives. Right. There's the, the big picture of politics. What are we really after? Ultimately, capital J justice. I guess one of the things I think about when I see these survey results, and again, you know, these are just bare facts in a certain sense, but they're also indicative perhaps of problems that arise by not understanding our system where we become frustrated by some of its features. One of the things that's often complained about is, well, we just can't get anything done and there's gridlock and there's, and, and of course there are reasons for that that go beyond the constitutional structure and might be very valid 
causes for complaint. But if we expect the president to be able to fix every problem, despite the fact that that's not actually the office constitutionally of the president, or we don't know about the limits on government power that are embedded in the Bill of Rights, not only are we not prepared to invoke those when we need to, but we're not able to appreciate why the thing that we think urgently must be done may not in fact be able to be done because we've already committed ourselves as a polity towards some different course. So I think one of the things that would help to lower the temperature in our politics just a little bit would be a deeper appreciation, not just of the particular facts and details, but of the the story of the system itself, to understand the regime at a level where you appreciate the vision embedded in it. What, What is this republic all about? And that would maybe inculcate some modesty, some patience, some restraint with respect to my expectations that I can immediately demand that this government do what I want and solve my problem and fix this situation that to me is so urgent and yet to many of my fellow Americans may not be urgent at all or in fact maybe something that they embrace and that they're pleased with and excited about. This is why I was so impressed with the first 10 minutes of the presidential debate where President Trump rightly said it was an election. He didn't elect me for three years. It's four years. Now, the quiz is, is it presidential term four or three years? That's not what matters. It's that when you elect someone to office, they hold that office from the moment uh, they're sworn in to the moment they hand it off to someone else. And so that's, that's a, a principle, right, of, of action that applies to the Supreme Court nomination and, and all the rest. But that, that's what we're after here. And, and, and that gets blurred in this type of environment. Right. So let's, let's connect this to another data point. Uh, Gallup reported earlier this week, the highest overall support for one party government, which they'd ever gotten in, in, their, in their survey. So 52% of Republicans and 43% of Democrats want the Congress and the presidency in the same hands. Now, only 32% of independents agree. So independents, not surprisingly, have a tendency to be less partisan and therefore perhaps prefer divided government. Only 17% of Republicans want divided government. 27% say they're indifferent. Democrats, 23 are okay with divided government, prefer that, and 30% are indifferent. And so I think, again, what we're seeing here is a story where you put all this together and Americans seem increasingly likely to want to cut out the obstacles to getting what they want and increasingly unlikely to see those obstacles as legitimate. And there are corollaries in our individual behavior, social and otherwise, to this kind of desire for unified government. We want unified conversations where the only people that we talk to online are those who agree with us. Right. Unified dinner parties, unified Thanksgivings, unified families where no level of disagreement is allowed. Or if you come over to someone's house who disagrees with you, you're worried that uh, it's, it's going to turn into some great uprising. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, that's a, a, a tragedy. Not that you know you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want pass the things that you want to pass by having uh, individuals who you believe in in office, but uh, that you can't even um, uh, imagine a world where people different than you hold some power or an ability to speak. So if we think about this as a, as a problem of education, and again, we're talking about this deep level of education, not just in the facts, but in the overall understanding of the regime, how do we move forward? How do we improve this? Well, unfortunately, the American Academy is not helping. So real clear education, another branch of the 
very helpful, real clear network, just released their college free speech rankings. And in the accompanying article, they note that they did a survey of 20,000, almost 20,000 students at 55 schools, mostly big state research universities or Ivy League or Ivy League equivalent type of schools. And of those 20,000, almost 20% of students say that using violence to stop an unwanted speech or event is in some cases acceptable. And among Ivy Leaguers, 36% said it was always or sometimes acceptable to shout down a speaker one doesn't like, 36%. Now, on the other side, they said the second problem they found was, was a problem of self-censorship, where 60% of college students say they've kept quiet due to a fear of how others would respond, and that's 72% when you focus on conservative students. And so they ranked these schools. Um, not surprising, at the top of the list, the best with respect to free speech was the University of Chicago, uh, if you know anything about their, their history and more recent history, where they put out a statement a few years ago that's become known as the Chicago Statement that lays out a vision for academic freedom. There's really two parts to it. Number one, a commitment to open debate. And the fact that you're offended isn't enough to shut that debate down, even if there's a consensus within the community that something is offensive. That's not enough to justify shutting the debate down. And then secondly, a commitment to a kind of civility where individuals agree that when they don't like something, they won't shout it down or make efforts to shut it down, that they will engage it with more rational claims. They will try to fight falsehood with truth and aim to educate rather than indoctrinate in order to stop the wrong thinking, wrong speaking that they identify among their classmates, faculty, staff, outside speakers, or the like. So this is University of Chicago statement. Um, but unfortunately, this is not the dominant paradigm of the research university system. So you work down this list, it, it gets pretty ugly, not too far from the top. And uh, Dartmouth has a distinction of being the worst of the Ivies, which is ranked 52nd of the 55 schools. Harvard, next worst, at 46th. Now, the reason I, I bring this up in part is because there's not very much distance between thinking it's okay to shout down a speaker you disagree with and thinking it's okay to use violence to advance your political agenda or respond to a lost election. In other words, the kind of civic behavior that Politico is finding people are prepared to engage in more broadly, students are being prepared for that at these elite universities. Yeah, most elite institutions in the country are one-party states. How are people hired in departments across these institutions? They're hired within um, the various uh, major departments in which there are majorities of individuals who aren't necessarily pursuing the truth, but believe they've already arrived at the truth. Uh, every vetting of a candidate who comes in is based upon whether or not that individual agrees with the truth or not. Uh, there's a type of violence that goes on and not even considering difference, opinion, uh, difference of opinion right at the front end uh, of that process. So you end up with an academy that is 95% uh, progressive and democratic uh, and may have a few outliers who censor themselves or live in a, a somewhat of a secret world with those uh, students who 
uh, may in a class or two of their 40 uh, get a difference of opinion. Really a great place um, to groom uh, the next uh, set of leaders of strategic institutions. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Let's transition out of our required reading, Dave, and try to think about where this has all come from. And you've got some readings for us to take us back some decades that might give us some perspective on how we got to where we are in 2020. Yeah, my two required readings uh, for this week are uh, books from both books from 1955. Uh, Lewis Hartz, who was a Harvard politics professor, wrote a book called The Liberal Tradition in America. Uh, and the famous, probably most famous 20th century American journalist, Walter Lippmann, uh, wrote a book the same year titled The Public Philosophy. So uh, we're going back uh, 65 years, which I think is a, is a good thing to do. We could probably, uh, as you see, go back even further uh, than that. But I think these two books uh, give us a good view as to what's taking place in the academy and what is offered as to what might be a future crisis in, in American uh, society and, and political thought. And I want to quickly, before I get into these two pieces, um, uh, mention once again uh, Professor Sheehan's essay, uh, because uh, she talks about these uh, two hurricanes that are converging and their intersection and what will happen. Uh, But much like uh, the theme of this show, right, the ideas behind the headlines, uh, she writes, the current political standoff did not just happen overnight, and it is not merely a partisan or petty squabble. It is, at bottom, a philosophical disagreement that can be traced back to the battle between the Enlightenment and German idealism, or to name names, between Locke, Jefferson, and Madison on the one hand, and Darwin, Hegel, and Marx on the other. So uh, Professor Sheehan, uh, realizing that this is kind of an age-old battle here, uh, I think leads us nicely into uh, the, the first reading uh, from Lewis Hart's uh, titled The Liberal Tradition in America. Now, uh, in the first chapter of this book uh, titled The Concept of a Liberal Society, Hart's bemoans uh, the conformist spirit that he says defines American politics in the 1950s and, and that he believes inoculates it from true uh, revolutionary reform, uh, from fulfilling the meaning of kind of the modern project of uh, democratic revolutionary. So um, when I ever, when I always teach uh, Hartz, I always suggest, okay, what is, what is he saying about American society? And who is he blaming for the state of American society? And you're trying to teach your students who are living in 2020 to kind of go back to the, the middle 1950s. And, and the best way to do that is kind of to reference films like Pleasantville or uh, comedies like The Andy Griffith Show, where in Mayberry, North Carolina, everyone does the same thing, believes the same thing, has the same set of values, et cetera. And, you know, Hart's writing in the middle of this, well, ask kind of why. Why is America so conformist? Why does it agree uh, to this consensus? Why is everyone um, uh, kind of, why is everyone bought into the I like Ike America of the 1950s? And the answer that Hartz gives is uh, America has always been conformist because America has always, whether it knew it or not, conformed to a consensus that was put forth by John Locke. Uh, John Locke here, the 17th century political philosopher uh, who very much defines the best life in terms of our possession of reason uh, that thereby allows us to labor in nature and to acquire property. Uh, and life is that acquisition of property, of uh, an ability to consume, uh, whereby the more productive we are, the more means we have to consume, and it's just that regular cycle uh, of life of production and consumption 
that allows us to live uh, uh, under a low horizon, but a more peaceful horizon uh, than that which was um, present uh, in an earlier uh, theological age in which there were grand disputes. Hartz writes uh, in this chapter that there has never been a liberal movement or a real liberal party in America. We have only had the American way of life, a nationalist articulation of Locke, which usually does not know that Locke himself was involved. This, this kind of clueless um, uh, agreement to the Lockean theory on how we ought to live uh, that's been very much produced by our leaders, uh, who ironically, I mean, we began this, uh, this whole segment uh, talking about the division who ironically are unified around this consensus. So here he, in his book, he's critical of progressives uh, because he says progressives have bought into this kind of bourgeois Lockean notion as well. And why can't we crack this Lockean nut and open this country up to true revolutionary change? So uh, oddly enough, you know, 65 years ago, we have academics suggesting uh, that's what's, what's wrong with America is not that why can't we all get along, but why do we get along too well on a Lockean basis? So, um, where's Hartz, who, who wants a revolution? Uh, wh- where does he find reason uh, for hope? And he says at the, uh, near the end of this uh, first chapter that there's reason for hope. Um, and the reason is that there's an individualist nature to the Lockean doctrine. Uh, there's always a logical impulse within Lockeanism to transcend the very conformitarian spirit it breeds in a Lockean society break that down real quickly. If Locke is going to emphasize the importance of the individual, right, and the project of living out the best life, what if this individual wants to acquire more than property? What if this individual wants to uh, begin to transcend the society that he lives in? Uh, Will that free spirit individual be able to chip away or break away or crack uh, that Lockean uh, conformist um, mold? And, um, and Herehart says, if that individual is to do so, and I would say this is his concluding battle cry in that first chapter, instead of recapturing our past, we have to transcend it. As for a child who is leaving adolescence, there's no going home again for America. So here, um, that language, right, that we've got to move forward, don't look backward, uh, transcend uh, the past, its norms, its customs, etc. That's the project to move us forward in a true revolutionary spirit. Well, it's an interesting time in the 1950s because you've got someone like a Hartz who's describing this conformity and yet sees the possibility of pushing past it. You've got others who seem to think, no, that's just as far as the eye can see, that's, that's what we're going to have. We've reached an age of the end of ideology, as Daniel Bell argues, and so the kind of old debates that used to fire our politics are over. We've kind of made our peace with the New Deal liberalism. Even conservatives are more or less accepted that. And there's kind of this new consensus that seems to have emerged that, that seems settled. And of course, we know that within a decade, we're in the 60s. Obviously, in five years, we're in the 60s chronologically. But the, the 60s, as we think of them, really begin about 65, 66. As you, as you move into Vietnam and, and the campuses begin to radicalize and all that is just, just a decade or so away as Hartz is writing. And I think Hartz here is, is actually a pretty accurate prophet in thinking about the mechanism that might lead a Lockean America into a post-Lockean future. Agreed. So I, we've talked before on this show about the two main impulses 
uh, behind American political movement in the 20th century being progressivism on, on the one hand and individualism on, on the other. If there's a type of progressivism that can speak to the yearnings of the individual, that progressivism probably is more likely right, to crack that Lockean nut. And I think that's in part what happens uh, with these various individual rights movements of the late 60s, early 1970s that, that do change American society on the basis that we have to give individuals rights that they haven't had before, correct? Right. And obviously some of those, that's a realization of a longstanding promise, right? There's a check that's it's time to be cashed. And some of those rights are not rights that you can ground in nature or in the constitution properly understood. So this leads nicely into my second required reading. I already mentioned, also written in 1955, Walter Lippmann's The Public Philosophy. And let me describe what he, he suggests or define what he says the public philosophy is and, and then go into why he believes that we don't have one in the 1950s and what the problem with this is and what perhaps the remedy is thereafter. Lippmann writes, the public philosophy is known as natural law, a name which alas causes great semantic confusion. This philosophy is the premise of the institutions of the Western society, and they are, I believe, unworkable in communities that do not adhere to it, except on the premises of this philosophy. It is impossible to reach intelligible and workable conceptions of popular election, majority rule, representative assemblies, free speech, loyalty, property, corporations, and voluntary associations. So you need a public philosophy to hold the system that endorses all of these things together. However, the things that these, these ideas, concepts, values have produced tend towards a self-interestedness, tend in Lippmann's book towards a self-centeredness or self-regarding. He writes, in the prevailing popular culture, all philosophies are the instruments of some man's purpose. All truths are self-centered and self-regarding, and all principles are rationalizations of some special interest. There's no public criterion of the true and the false, of the right and the wrong, beyond that which the preponderant mass of voters, consumers, readers, and listeners happen at the moment to be supposed to want. So whereas the individualism that hearts bemoaned because it was Lockean and bourgeois uh, can only be remedied by a, a, a more transcendent individualism, what Lippmann is arguing is that the individualism of the 1950s prevents Americans from connecting on a higher, more transcendent level. What do you make of that argument, Matt? Oh, well, I think it's a really powerful statement in the first sentence that you read there in that, in that last paragraph. All truths are regarded as self-centered and self-regarding. All principles are rationalizations of some special interest. So we don't even consider the idea of a, of a true principle of justice as plausible. The minute someone articulates a claim of justice, we want to know, okay, well, what's your angle? How do you benefit by that? How is that going to help people like you and hurt people like me? And the fact that the claim could actually be founded upon some account of nature, could actually be rationally connected to an overall understanding of the good life, the pursuit of happiness, and capital J justice is simply beyond our comprehension. We don't even have that category anymore with which to evaluate the claim. We so quickly make that cynical move, that individualistic move, 
to assume that your claim is a disguise for your interest, that we've lost any opportunity of actually making progress together toward a greater realization of justice. So what's the remedy? Drum roll. The remedy, all right, the remedy is the return of Aristotle uh, or someone like him uh, in the mid-1950s, that uh, Western society uh, can be brought back uh, to uh, its, its original uh, impulse to common good and, and to the idea of something beyond uh, self-interest. He writes, I do not contend, though I hope, that the decline of Western society will be arrested if the teachers in our schools and universities come back to the great tradition of the public philosophy. Uh Oh, I hope he wasn't reading hearts in 1955. (laughs) But I do contend that the decline, which is already far advanced, cannot be arrested if the prevailing philosophers oppose this restoration and revival. So he knows that there could be some hearts out there if they impugn rather than support the validity of an order, which is superior to the values that Sartre tells each man quote, to invent, end quote. So, I mean, you know, once again, I mean, this is, a, this is your prominent journalist in the 1950s. Isn't this writing amazing? Isn't this thought, you know, just that, can you imagine if their journalists were at this level uh, in 2020? <laughs> I, what, I, I, let me ask you a different question, Matt. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you make of philosophy and philosophers and teaching as a remedy or what ails us in terms of our lack of a public philosophy? A necessary starting point is that we begin to appreciate that we have access through our reason to truths that go beyond our own self-interest, go beyond our own self-creation. We have to begin to recapture the idea that there's something out there that's beyond me and beyond even collectively what we agree to. That, that's the first step that we begin to recapture the possibility that there could be true truth, right? The capital T truth that is actually existing and binding upon us individually and collectively. Now, I think the challenge that Lippmann gives us is a challenge of trying to figure out, can, can philosophy, certainly at the stage it's reached in the 20th century, can that actually uncover that truth for us and build that consensus? Is, is that the foundation upon which we can build? Can philosophy, to put it a finer point on it, do this without the theology department leading the way? Yeah, I, I would say that it, it can't because I, I think that what we're talking about here is the rebirth of uh, what some call classical political rationalism, right? It requires... Uh, a recognition that human beings have souls and, and that those souls can make out truth within the natural world and that there are sources of objective truth that we can turn to and have access to uh, as uh, free human beings. Uh, and we can, uh, from that uh, vantage point, uh, then teach others those same things and act upon those truths. And um, I, I'm not sure if, if by itself uh, philosophy can do that. This is where, if you go back to Sheehan's triads there, you might wonder, well, why is Darwin mixed in with Marx and Hegel? But of course, Darwin is critically important on this point because as Darwin is popularized and boulderized and used for political purposes, the idea that there could be a natural law, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., right? What is the natural law? simply a projection 
of the things that we want and the things we're willing to fight for. And so you very quickly reach this nihilistic conclusion as people follow Darwin down this path and try to apply it politically, that there can be no transcendent truth if everything that we see in terms of living organisms is just a result of of random chance and variation over the course of time, there can be no meaning to it, no no soul for sure, and nothing transcendent beyond the material world. And so even though we don't probably commonly think of Darwin as, as a philosopher, as we would think of Marx and Hegel in those categories, it's really Darwin, as you go back and you study the early progressives, that I think has had the most profound effect on the elite and, and made it implausible for that elite to embrace the transcendent. And so that's exactly why, getting back to your point a moment ago, there's a theological component to this to reestablish the possibility of the non-material world. In a post-Darwin West, we've got to rebuild a belief in the possibility and the reality of a world beyond the material. So what you're saying is, don't know much about teleology. <laughs> That's right. Just one, one more thought on this in connection with the American political tradition. Great passage in George Washington's farewell address where he talks about the role of morality, religion, and how that ought to engage public life. And I think it, it's a nice capstone on this discussion going back to the political article about violence and all the way through this discussion of some of the philosophical roots of our contemporary problems. Here's what Washington says. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. And of course, you know, when he's writing this, he and Hamilton are writing this, this is the context of the French Revolution, where the French Revolution is essentially claiming we've got a conflict between freedom and religion. And if we're going to advance the cause of freedom, it's going to be at the expense of religion. And, and so here's Washington pushing back on this. A few lines further down, he says, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. And so you probably wonder, well, where's this going? President's final word to the country as he's retiring from office after two terms, supporting religion, encouraging religion and morality. But what's the practical takeaway? That's what he says in the very next paragraph. Promote then as an object of primary importance institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge. In proportion as the structure of a government gives force to public opinion, it is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. Right? We need institutions that are enlightening public opinion. Now, we've just seen that that's not, by and large, what's happening at the elite research university of our country. The public mission of the university to encourage good citizenship in a republic has been abandoned to establish a revolutionary cadre of leaders 
Raider remakes society not according to any pattern in nature, not according to any effort to achieve that which is truly just or good or beautiful, but to achieve just those individualistic desires and impulses which have replaced the truly good and just and beautiful as the object of the academic eye. So Matt, what is the uh, mission statement of the King's College where you teach? Through its commitment to the truths of Christianity and a biblical worldview, the King's College seeks to transform society by preparing students for careers in which they help to shape and eventually to lead strategic public and private institutions. And by supporting faculty members as they directly engage culture through writing and speaking publicly on critical issues. And Providence? Mission of Providence Christian College as a reformed Christian institution is to equip students to be firmly grounded in biblical truth, thoroughly educated in liberal arts, and fully engaged in their church, their community, and the world for the glory of God and for service to humanity. Outliers. 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 But outliers in, a, in the same way, right? Outliers for their commitment first to Christ and then through that to Christ, to loving their neighbor, and as one expression of that, loving their neighbor as good citizens in a self-governing community. All right, well, let's now turn to the grade book. And as promised last week, we couldn't avert our eyes. We had to watch the debate Tuesday night. So we're going to grade the debate. We gave you a rubric last time around, what an A would look like, a C and F for each of the two candidates. So Dave. Give me a grade for President Trump Tuesday night. And my grade wasn't as bad as, as most people who, who were grading Trump. I, I thought that he made some good points along the way. I wish he would have done his homework better. That's just not the type of person he is or uh, debate uh, preparation person that he is. I thought he had at least three or four opportunities uh, to dig deeper into the Green New Deal uh, to go further in terms of why we don't want to pack a court, uh, to talk about uh, those things. And, and he just, uh, he couldn't stop himself um, uh, from uh, uh, poking away and interrupting and, and wasn't able uh, thereby uh, to really kind of express himself uh, as I think uh, would have been helpful for him. So I'm going to give him a C plus uh, for the evening. Okay. I'm, I'm going to C minus. I think there were some real opportunities, as you said, on Green New Deal, court packing, on the shutdowns, the difference between his approach, COVID, and uh, Vice President Biden's, he seemed like whenever Chris Wallace might have been inclined to press Biden, he would interrupt so much that Wallace had to redirect back to Trump just to beg him to let Biden answer the question. I thought that uh, Biden, really anticipating maybe the second part of this, but was a little bit shaky and that, and that had Donald Trump backed off a little bit more, he might have accomplished more for his own political purposes than he did by being so aggressive over and over again over the course of the night. Yeah, I think I'd give, uh, I would mean by compare Trump to Biden, I think I'd give Biden a B minus um, because what Biden was able to do is he was able to make it to the end of the debate. I've already mentioned, I thought that his line that if he loses, he loses was, was very good. It was probably the most positive thing said uh, all evening by both uh, candidates. Uh, I do think he was scripted. Um, I, I do think that um, uh, one uh, one thing that you'd want more of is perhaps more of a freewheeling Biden, or you'd feel more confident about him if he was more freewheeling. But uh, that's just not uh, how he's going to move forward. Um, he is uh, very much a candidate of handlers, and 
uh, and f- the fact that he stood up uh, 90 minutes uh, and and survived, uh, he has handled his, handlers had prepared him well, uh, a B minus uh, performance. Yeah, I give him the same grade. I think he avoided being the story. That was an important thing for him. There wasn't anything where you thought, wow, this guy may not be physically up to the job or, or he said something that would be an easy 30 second ad for Republicans. Look, this guy really is just the front for these radicals and don't be confused by good old Joe and the calm demeanor and all the rest. So there were openings for those kind of things, but none of it actually happened. And so I think in that sense, he walks out of there at least as strong as he walked in. All right, so let's now, looking ahead to next week, vice presidential debate. We've got Kamala Harris and Mike Pence squaring off. And just for their sake, just to be fair like we did last time, let's lay down a few markers as we anticipate grading them next week. What will you be looking for, Dave, in Kamala Harris's performance? I think an A, she'd have to be uh, likable. Uh, I think without being likable to receive a C, she'd have to be wary uh, of, of going too far in presenting uh, too great a progressive vision uh, for the country. And I think an F in her case would be coming off as condescending and going too far with those progressive uh, principles. So that would be the rubric that I would use for Kamala. Yeah, I think the, the worst case scenario for her would be to commit too strongly to far left proposals, a Green New Deal or something of that sort, and also to raise serious doubt as to whether or not Joe Biden will actually be president. And in some ways to sort of assert her vision in a way that seems like everyone says, okay, so we really know, as, as she herself has said a couple of times, perhaps accidentally, perhaps not, this will be a Harris-Biden administration. If it really seems plausible and she's staked out some far left ground, that I think is the kind of thing possibly that could move the pulse. Uh, a C, fine. There's nothing especially remarkable. She perhaps has a few stumbles, but nothing memorable, nothing that really changed the trajectory of the race. And an A, I think she just hits hard, um, but in a fair way and is able to expose some of the weaknesses. Yeah, and I think, well, I, for Pence, here, here's what I think that he needs to do. I, I would say he needs to cast a, a very positive uh, vision of the Republican Party. He needs to kind of regain uh, some of that momentum that I think that the party had, that the Trump um, campaign had uh, over the course of the Republican National Convention. Uh, I don't know how uh, possible it is for, for Mike Pence to do that because I, I don't think he's going to fail. I, I, I think, you know, at a bare minimum, he's going to put in a, a solid B minus performance, but uh, he's got to be more than than simply kind of a sober conservative vice president um, on on this night. I think he's got to uh, to kind of reach a little bit higher, uh, and he's got to he's got to turn the race. I think a little bit too, because it's looking right now if the president's in quarantine for 14 days that there may not be a second uh, presidential uh, debate. So I think it's a little more um, a little more riding on this, and I think Mike Pence has to rise to that occasion. Yeah, I agree. He's got. He's got his work cut out for him, partly because of uh, the COVID-19 context, also partly because of the fact that just where you are in this race, you know, the, the numbers are not trending in President Trump's favor. 
So you're going to have to do something to shake things up a little bit, at least make some incremental progress. That is always difficult in a vice presidential debate. I think he has the capacity to certainly deliver a professional performance. I don't think he'll be rattled by Kamala Harris's attacks or by the moderator's attacks, but he's going to have to, as you say, do more than that. If he's going to have an A performance, that's going to move the, the needle in the direction of the Trump campaign. I think a C performance for him is just kind of bland. I think he can be bland. And if, it, if that's all he is, there's a kind of normalcy that will be attractive about that, but also quickly forgotten. I think an F for performance for him, uh, he just gets pinned down by either Harris or by the moderator, can't respond well to the challenges which we know are going to come, and ends up either just looking weak or somehow like a pale imitation of Donald Trump and isn't able to capture that positive vision, which, as you said, was, was well presented, mostly by speakers other than President Trump at the Republican National Convention. All right, we close our show every week with de Tocqueville's crystal ball. And we've now got three rounds of picks in the books where we look at five different sports, five different contests. Dave, you had an uptick this week. You hit two out of five. So that makes you four and 11. Uh, I had my worst week, which was three out of five. So I'm 11 and four. We're doing this nice symmetry thing here. Uh, my dad told me he was a little bit worried when he heard you pick his Green Bay Packers for the Sunday night game last week, but then he felt it was probably okay since I picked them as well. So just want to let you know, people are listening and their emotional health is in some ways riding on the picks that are coming from us. Now, to be fair to you, I have to say, you are now officially the New Hampshire Fantasy Baseball League champion. You finished the job Nice, clean victory. I came in last by a mile. And layered on top of that, adding insult to injury, it was your team against mine in our fantasy football league last week, and you soundly defeated me as most of my guys decided to get hurt early or just put in a very bad performance. Yeah. Well, hold on a second. And then uh, you've heard me say on multiple occasions <laughs> that the Stanley Cup victor would be the Tampa Bay Lightning. Okay, you're right. Who won the Stanley Cup. Who won the Stanley Cup. And I also said that the Houston Astros uh, will uh, win the World Series, and they upset the Minnesota Twins, who were a great team at home. They're one of eight teams who could still win. So other than this little crystal ball thing that we do at the end of every show, um, if, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I just need to get it out of the kind of this segment to, to be able to be um, Nostra, Nostradamus-like. Yeah, we, we, found, right. we found your kryptonite. Exactly. Okay, so we've got round four. Number one, got to do it. Big game, Patriots at Chiefs. Chiefs more than a touchdown favorite, seven and a half point favorite, disrespecting Bill Belichick. Do you put up with that, Dave? I think I do. Uh, I, I think <laughs> okay. I do this week. Uh, the Chiefs are pretty amazing uh, to watch. Uh, if they yeah. were kind of a defensive team, if this was the Ravens the Patriots are playing, I probably would take the Patriots with the points. Uh, but uh, Chiefs can score like 28 points in you know three minutes. So even a close game could get out of hand quickly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that happens. It's a you know, once every 25-year occurrence, but uh, the Chiefs uh, are able to defeat the, the Patriots by about 10 points and, and, and carry and cover that spread. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to take your position in this one because I think the Patriots might be able to hang in there. 
it could be one of those last minute cover kind of situations too. Sometimes you get one of those, it's really not a close game, but there's a garbage time touchdown with a seven and a half point spread. You end up 28, 21 and you just squeak under there. So I'm counting on something like that, or maybe some Belichick magic. Who knows? Cam Newton, there's some special things that can happen there. Um, the defense is not as strong as I would have liked to see after the performance against Russell Wilson. That was a little bit concerning. So it's very possible Mahomes just lights them up, but maybe not. So I'm going to take the Patriots in this one. Well, here's my one side prediction. So just as kind of a defensive strategy, I, I'm going to predict that Belichick has some sort of defensive formation where he has eight people in the defensive backfield and like three linemen the whole game. So he'll invent his, his own defense for this game. That's, that's my guess. That sounds right. That sounds right. Okay. Number two, college football. We have back in the SEC, number 10, Texas A&M playing at number two, Alabama. Just shows you how crazy the respect for Alabama is that over the number 10 team in the country, supposedly, they're a 17 and a half point favorite. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I moved to Texas. I haven't picked a Texas college team to root for yet. My wife wants the Longhorns. You know, I have some neighbors who are A&M fans, some LSU fans, but I can't root against a Texas team. And I think that given that LSU uh, being upset a couple weeks ago um, shows us that um, perhaps something's a little bit off uh, in this whole system. So yeah, I'm going to take Texas A&M with 17 and a half points. I think they may be able to do something here. I agree. I'm going to take A&M also. Alabama last week got off to an incredible start, was up 30 points at the half, and then kind of lost interest of the team back in it, and so didn't cover the points. But I think there's another possibility that that kind of thing happening here. Um, even though it's still a big SEC matchup, they can lose interest. They can run out even to a big lead, and A&M can make it respectable by the end. So I think, I think really both Patriots and A&M might be one of those where you cover the points – and yet you don't really feel like either team was ever actually a threat to win the game. Number three, NBA Finals, game two tonight. Miami at the Lakers in the bubble. Lakers are nine-and-a-half-point favorites after a big game one win. I can't stand the Lakers. I can't stand LeBron James. And I actually love the Heat. I mean, I was hoping the Celtics would make it to the finals, but – if you listen to any of those games or watch them, a Heat are, are a great team. Now, they've got a couple people injured, so that uh, will uh, make it more difficult um, to cover. Uh, but I think nine and a half points is enough. The Lakers have a little bit of a letdown. The Heat keep it close, uh, hit some three-pointers, uh, play good defense. So I'm going to go with Heat tonight. Okay. I, I would like to do that. Yeah, I, I would really much rather the, the Heat win the series, and you don't want to get down 2-0 against the Lakers and LeBron and try to win the series. But I just have a feeling that the injuries are going to be too much. They already showed they were in a tough battle in game one, nine and a half points. I think it could be another 15, 20 point spread. So I'm going to take the Lakers in game two. All right. We have one game three today, this new weird major league baseball wild card series, St. Louis Cardinals at the San Diego Padres. Jack Flaherty, coming off a disappointing regular season, but a, obviously a great pitcher, basically against the entire Padres bullpen. They don't apparently really have anyone who can start, so they're just going to piece it together. But they are at home in San Diego, looking to advance in the playoffs for the first time in a while. What do you think, Dave? 
I think the Padres take this. Uh, I, I, they've been a, a great team to kind of follow. I mean, the short season and, and there's a lot of, uh, we were in San Diego last week, a lot of kind of excitement there. So yeah, I, I, I think they do it. Uh, I have Flaherty on my team and, and uh, he's had an awful season or just a, uh, he hasn't been himself and he is a great pitcher, but I think uh, he gives up some runs early and, and uh, the Padres are able to piece together a victory. It'd be fun. It'd be fun to see Fernando Tatis, making it further into the playoffs. Obviously, a lot of energy, excitement, incredible player and all kinds of tools. So I think that's a, it's a fun San Diego team. Now, I say that my son's going to be very angry because they have Manny Machado. And he will hate Manny Machado for the rest of his life because he's the one who took out Dustin Pedroia several years ago and basically ended Pedroia's career with a, with a cheap slide into second base. So I am going to pick the Padres, but with apologies to my son for, at least in this sense, rooting for the team that has the player that did his favorite Red Sox player in. Number five, Major League Soccer. Our first foray into American soccer. Big matchup though, Dave. I know you follow it closely. Inter-Miami, the newest MLS expansion team, at home against NYCFC. Basically, this is the messy bowl. Right, like the August when all their talk about Lionel Messi leaving Barcelona was heating up and all the American dreamers, there were two destinations they were talking about. David Beckham said, oh, I'm going to bring him to Miami. And then there were others, no, Manchester City is going to get him in the Premier League and they've got a partnership with NYCFC and he'll end up in New York after a couple of years in the Premier League. Well, of course, neither happened at least yet. So this is their chance to impress Messi as perhaps his future home as he rounds out his career, maybe at the age of 45 or 50 when he's reached a level where he's kind of compatible with the quality of MLS soccer. What do you think here, Dave? Inter Miami. That was, that was a nice hit uh, yeah, on, on MLS soccer. Yeah. So, somewhere around, you know, retirement age when, when he comes to play here. Right. Uh, I, I, I knew your choice was going to be uh, NYC because you're there. I'm going to go with Inter Miami. So we'll, We'll uh, be on the other side of this. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually not really a NYCFC fan because of that connection to Manchester City being a Tottenham fan in the Premier League. Uh, you know, I don't have any reason to root for a team. And by the way, they play in Yankee Stadium, another strike against them. But I think, you know, you got to be objective on this. They got the better record, and I think they're going to they're gonna win the game. All right, that's it. We'll see you next time if we can keep up the pace with these five picks stretching ourselves, testing ourselves week by week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Grateful for your support. Encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. We will talk to you next week.